You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. Hi. One more quick thought on Pitt before their season ends here in the ACC tournament. And they, and they have to go to the NIT, which I don't think I'm going to watch. I really don't think I'm going to watch that because all the teams, most of the teams going to be gone next year. And uh, why do I want to watch them play in a stupid tournament like the NIT when almost all of them are going to be gone? You know, it's like, it's dumb. I think it would be very, very, in fact, hopefully Jeff Capel will ask them, do you want to do this if they get NIT? Because the only reason they might is they get to play home games in the NIT and they'd probably be a very highly rated ranked NIT team, seated very high. So they would probably get a couple games at the Pete, you know. So for that reason, get the students something to come out for. Yeah, I, mean, I guess maybe they would take the NIT just to have some fun playing in front of their fans again. But it's really pathetic when, you know, half your team is gutted and leaving and you're playing in a tournament. So it's, you're not building, any, you know what I mean? You're not building any momentum. Uh, I guess you could say, well, let's work on Federico. Let's work on the Twins. Henson's supposed to be back next year, so you could say, okay, let's let's get a lot of work for for the big guys, you know, underneath in the NIT, you know. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it's dumb. But whatever. Uh, that's where they're going to end up. I, I, I think here's the thing. If they lose to Florida State, let's just say Florida State's beating Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech stinks. So Florida State's going to win, and it's going to be Florida State on Wednesday for Pitt. If they lose to Florida State, they're definitely out of the NCAA tournament. Uh, if they beat Florida State and lose to Duke, it will be on Thursday at 2.30. Uh, if, they, if they would happen to beat Florida State. And then if they lose to Duke, then it's still questionable whether or not they're in. But w- I don't think any of that matters. I think they'll probably lose to Florida State on Wednesday, to be honest with you. I do. Because I think that the team has been destroyed. And, and I wanted to make this quick podcast again. Nobody out there in the sports world, or very few people in the sports world, think of sports with an artistic mind. Now, I know there are a number of creative types who do love sports. I see them. Spike Lee, right? He's quite creative, and he has courtside seats for his New York Knicks. And I know that Ben Stiller is also a Knicks fan. I believe he's a Knicks fan, not the Nets. Yeah, he's a Knicks fan. And... um He's a creative guy, and I know that uh, um, I'm forgetting his first name, Wright, a black actor from, like, Westworld, and Jeremy, uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, he's a big uh, Nets fan, Brooklyn Nets. Um, You see him on, he's quite creative. So there are uh, very creative people, artists, actors, musicians, who have, and I know, like, a lot in England and the U.K., a lot of our, a lot of those musicians, because I listened to this uh, pretty interesting podcast called The Rock on Tours, which is hosted by Gary Kemp, who was in the band Spandau Ballet, and Guy Pratt, who's sort of like a, a bassist au jour. He's, he's a <laughs> bassist with juice. He's, <laughs> he plays everywhere. He is a, uh, a bassist on call, and he's played with Pink Floyd, and he was in the band... Uh, Ugh, what's the name of them? Anyway, he wasn't on their only hit in America, so it doesn't really matter. But the band he used to play in, they had one hit in here in America, but he was not with the band anymore when they had that hit. Um, <laughs> but they host all of these mostly 
British, mostly from the UK, uh, old time rock stars because they're both in their sixties. Uh, Guy Pratt might be. Guy Pratt might be. I'm fifty seven in a couple weeks. He might be fifty nine. He might still be in his fifties, but uh, or he's in his very early sixties. But most of the guys they have on are in their late sixties and seventies. They have on the old time rockers. You know, they've had. Some younger-ish people in their 50s, like Billy Corrigan from Smashing Pumpkins and so on. But they've had, uh, and that's an American, by the way. He's from Chicago. But they, most of the guys that are English guys, and they're from, and they're old. But the point of the uh, me bringing that up isn't the age. The point is that they all love soccer. They all love football, as they call it. And they're big fans. And it's just a big thing over there. So obviously, if you're in the UK, you can be very creative and into music and still be a sportsman. However, I will tell you, growing up here in America, that is not usually the case. Um, Most musicians and musical types in Pittsburgh, for example, sure, they paid homage to the Steelers and a little bit to the Penguins and some more than others to the Penguins because we were winning all the time. You know, but the reality is, uh, as somebody who grew up in drama class and doing creative things, I was really alone um, in also being a big sports fan. The reality is in Pittsburgh, and I think in America on the whole, that it's kind of like you have to choose sports or creativity. And I feel like that is an interesting concept and I wanted to do a podcast on it because I think that there is a way to look at sports like Bill Cower, who was, let's be honest, a dumb jock still at his heart of hearts, Bill Cower, head coach of the Steelers on CBS on Sundays. But he was very passionate and he was very emotional on the sidelines. And when he still talks about it, when he talks about football to this day, he still talks about emotion. He's just a big believer, you know, that that firing up and feeling being emotional and getting passionate is important, important to winning. Now, other people don't believe it as much. Other people like Chuck Knoll, he won and won four Super Bowls, four out of four. And um, Hall of Fame coach, very stoic, very unemotional on the sidelines. But he was also very intelligent, and he actually was quite creative, I believe. I, I remember hearing... Um, no, maybe not creative, just intelligent, well-read, <clears throat> but not very passionate, not very emotional. Um, and, I, and, and not that, like I said, Cower's not, <laughs> he's, he's st- still more the dumb jock type personality. He's not like a painter or an artist or anything like that. Um, but he, he did at least have the passion. And I guess what I'm saying is I think there's a a way to look at sports. You can be an artist. You can be a creative type and love sports because you see it as having passionate meaning and a, it's an art form. And I think that the the UK following the musicians that are on to soccer, part of it is because it's they're born into it. It's part of their national heritage. It's like you almost have no choice, you know, like being raised in a religion by your parents. You may break away and not be that religion anymore, but you always have it in your blood, you know. So that's probably part of it with the UK musicians all being into soccer. But I also think 
that I'm sure that they would tell you, these musicians that love soccer, that the passion and the meaning behind it and the the crowd and the you know the emotion is the draw. It's not so much the sport because they recognize when you're when you're more sensitive and you're an artist type, you recognize the insignificance of things a lot. You know, you call it depression or whatever, but part of the sense of an artist is to notice when things matter and notice when they don't. To feel the power of a of a gentle breeze or and the smell of something in the air in the fall or in the spring, you know, but to then to also understand that, um, you know, someone mowing the lawn is just someone mowing the lawn and um, going to school is just kind of a process you have to do and money's just money and it doesn't really matter and um, it's not that important and, you know, it's, love is way more important than than and commerce and uh and just sort of a sense of like the futility of it all we work real hard we argue about things we get all angry and really what is it what does it mean where are we going is there a life after death and even if there is what is it and do we want it is it scary all these you know the thoughts that we can delve into when you're more of a creative artistic mind although granted there are a lot of atheists who are artists so there's certainly no correlation between creativity and spirituality necessarily. But I do think there's a correlation between emotions, passions, mattering, and creating. I don't think you can be a musician, a painter, a photographer, a, you know, any kind of actual artist, creator, without believing that the underlying feelings matter that that what's beneath the surface has significance and and so uh you don't see a lot of artists into sports because sports are like uh, 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 there's nothing under the surface you would think right it's just all blunt and out there and it's all just sort of basic animalistic kick hit me hit you throw my you hockey bang slam you know score yay and and the fans are generally, you know, just into, oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many fans that are just casual fans that aren't even really, don't even know that much, but they go and they cheer and they eat their hot dogs and whatever, drink their beers, tailgate, you know. <clears throat> and there's this communal thing, but so what, right? If you're an artist, you, you're, you're anti-establishment. You're anti-people all getting together doing the same thing. You're anti-military. You're anti-religion usually as an artist. Like I said, there's a lot of atheists you know, in the art world. You're anti-groupthink. Uh, and so the conflict as an artist in sp with sports is you couldn't think of a more significant uh, example uh, that's sort of anti-artist than sports crowds and sports teams they wear the same uniform they get in a formation or they do something together and they fight and it's like a war and it's a battle and then what's it about points scoring it's it's silly now it doesn't mean artists don't have fun and can't laugh and can't have fun but they have fun with music they have fun with art 
you know, not necessarily making it, but watching it and enjoying it after the fact. It's hard to make art. It's not exactly a thrill, as David Bowie said. It's, it's not like sex. Sex you can enjoy. <laughs> he said sex you can actually enjoy, but making uh, art or music or painting, he said it's, it's not really tremendous enjoyment to do it. And it, it isn't. It's work. It's like it's, it takes pain. It takes, you know, you have to dig deep. And uh, it can actually be artful. Uh, and scary. Uh, I know when I write music and finish, I always feel kind of naked and scared inside. I'm driven when I'm doing it, but when it's over, I'm kind of like, now what? I'm very, I'm, I'm like afraid that I'm exposing myself, and I'm not sure if it even mattered. And there's this emptiness, letting go of a creation, and not, uh, and and feeling it's almost just as insignificant as everything else. See, when you're making art, you feel it's a significant thing because you're you're digging into a realm of under the surface and you're expressing it in a way that others probably aren't able to. And that's why they like art. They like to see things they're feeling, but they themselves can't put into words or express. So you, the artist, are doing it for them. But that process of digging in and pulling that out is vulnerable and scary. And when you put it out, oftentimes, I do anyway, I feel like, so what? You know, if I were famous, maybe I'd get a big head and I'd go, so a lot. Look, I just shit a new creation out and everybody's glorifying it. I'm the greatest, you know. But as a unknown uh, artist, you know, when I create and I put it out there and it, and it just goes thud usually and nobody cares about it, that's a very depressing feeling, not because I didn't get attention, but because I created something and it didn't matter that, that even when I do something that feels so meaningful, it doesn't matter, you know? So then what matters? I've already decided the things the world puts first, you know, and our society lives for, they don't matter. I know that. So then what matters is what, what's under the surface and what we're feeling and, and the things we're afraid of and the things we're looking forward to and the things we hope in and dream of and love. And that's what matters. But when I dig into all that and put it out and create something and everyone goes, uh-huh, yeah, so next. And you're like, wow, okay, so even that doesn't matter. So how am I valuable as a human being? I don't want to create in the – I don't want to work and, and function in some practical way that all these people think – they think it matters when I don't. But when I delve into my heart and soul and give it a, a that and they overlook it or dismiss it, wow, then what is my point? So the thing about sports if that I found – is it's a way for me to delve down into things I'm sensing and feeling. And I trans, I sort of, I watch the sport and I see the things the dumb jocks <laughs> might not see that they're feeling about each other. You know, I see the coach and the player interactions and the moves they're making and the teams. And I take that in as a sort of a symbolic, deep emotional like an opera, let's say. Call it like an opera. There's a lot of drama there in sports that people are feeling and experiencing and they don't even see it that way because they're too busy, you know, just being athletes and running around and scoring and winning and all that. But there's really a reason for it. And and I look at sports as a an under not an art form. I don't think they are, but they are a, a way that people express themselves that they can't otherwise do. See? 
So when I say as an artist, I create something for someone that they can't create, and I say something for them that they can relate to and see inside themselves that they're not otherwise able to you know, reach and bring out, I think sports are like that. I think sports stir up passions and feelings in a way that's good for people to get them out. And I also think if you're not just the average sports fan, but a creative sports fan, you can see things going on between the players on a team, things going on. You can be sensitive to connections and problems even between a coach and teammates or, or players. And um, that adds drama. So that, like, I, I can give an example. My father and I can be watching a game, and he's not an artist creative type. And he's just watching it on its face value and enjoying sports for sports. I'm feeling a lot of other things going on between different things. You know, you could, he would think I'm just reading into it too much. He would think I'm seeing things that aren't there. But I'm not. I've learned over the years that I'm smart about, you know, you learn from watching. My sensitivities are actually on point more than they're not. And what I'm sensing and feeling about a sports team, their chemistry, you know, how they operate together, uh, how, whether or not they actually believe in one another. That's on point. And so I can tell when a team is finished or when a team is rising up. And I, I, get, I get a rush from that. Now, I'm not a stupid fan who believes that I'm contributing to it. I don't believe uh, – I do believe that fans that go to games and are actually there and make noise, I do think that contributes to it. I do believe that energy is real and helps. And the, and the players have said so, and I think it, it just does. But <clears throat> as someone who rarely, if ever, goes to sporting events anymore, I haven't been to many in years, um, I certainly don't believe that sitting at home and I don't cheer at home. I don't make much noise watching games alone, you know. Um, and I don't believe that what I'm feeling is, trans is somehow going through the TV screen and reaching them. I, I'm not crazy like that at all. So it's not about giving them energy, but I do sense their energy. I can watch and see and feel from what I'm watching what's going on beyond just so I can tell early in a game if the Steelers are probably not going to win that day or if it's a bad outing for a pitcher, you know, and not just because he's giving up runs or not, but if he's, if he's struggling in a certain way that he struggles when he's not going to have a good game, then that's he's not going to have a good game. So you have to be sensitive to the patterns of these people, sensitive to what they're showing you. <clears throat> and again, sensitive to the interactions between their manager or their coach and them and their teammates. And then you can get a better feel for should you feel good about this game? Should you feel good about a win today? Do you think they have a chance or not? And did, should you feel good about this team going forward? There are a lot of things you can sense. And uh, if you're an artist watching sports and you're paying attention, more times than not, you're accurate. You're correct in what you're sensing. And that's my point. So I would say uh, that although a lot of artists don't get into sports because they feel like it's er, grunty, animalistic warfare and it's groupthink and, you know, the fans are a pain in the ass and the fans are not really the sensitive types and all that stuff those generalizations. I think that if you are a sports fan and creative, which again, growing up, I realized they are, they are in the minority, especially in Pittsburgh. But I think, I think throughout the world, especially in the United States, 
I think the sports fan generally, they don't have a lot of room for artists, you know. And you'll find if you get into the arts in America that most actors and singers and rock star, you know, performers and classical musicians. And I, I would say that the majority of them do not root for sports teams. Um, I'm not saying it's like 90%, but I would say 60% of them do not, you know. I just think it's less likely than the opposite that you'd be a sports fan um, if you're a creative type. But if you are a creative type and you are watching sports, I think you have insights. And I think I'm not saying you should bet games and that you have insights on who's going to win or lose necessarily ahead of a game because you can't really read a team ahead of a game. You have to kind of see how it opens up and get a feel for what's going on. But um, my dad likes to say I'm very negative, but he's <laughs> that's only because I, my dad watches games, again, clueless to what's going on and enjoying it that way. And so I can feel half, you know, at halftime of a game, this game's over. But he'll just be thinking, hey, we're only, you know, so much down and we have a chance, you know. And then in the second half, we'll, like, get blown out, you know, or something. And he'll be all disheartened then. But I'm bringing him down too soon, see. So my, my projections of it's not going to work out to him is negativity. But to me, it isn't. I'm just reading the tea leaves, so to speak. I'm using my creative attributes and getting a feel, you know. And, and sometimes I go the opposite way and I get positive, you know. And he never thinks about those times. My dad never says, you know, oh, you're so positive. <laughs> but there are uh, certainly times when I feel good about a game even though we're losing or good about something, about a team in general, even though the season doesn't look that good. There are times when I sense a team is on the rise and I sense they're connecting with one another. And again, I'm not psychic. I'm just talking about creative perceptions, emotional perceptions, you know, the things that, that help you to be creative. The things that you put into your work as a creative artist, noticing things that other people might not notice or at least being able to, you know, hold on to them. Other people might notice them and then they fly past, whereas a creative artist might notice something and, they, and they're able to grab it and put it aside and put it into their work. I think it's the same as true for watching sports. You're able to watch something, sense something and sort of hold on to it and, and um, put it into a a sense, an understanding of where this team is going or not going. So having said all of that, bringing it back to Pitt basketball this year in the 2022-2023 season, I believe the season's over. And the reason I do, again, I, I, I look at the sports fans online and listen to the podcast, <clears throat> and uh, when it comes to Greg Elliott, my favorite player and a player I think is very important to the team, um, nobody is noticing hardly that he's being benched. People seem to imply that, well, he's just not playing good, so he's someone's playing over him. But that's not what's happening, okay? Because, like, I watched the whole season, and many a game he would start out the game and miss a few shots. He didn't get yanked. He was allowed to stay in, and then by the end of the game he would score – 12 points or whatever, hit a few shots to make up for the ones he missed, and he was key to the, the win. He would get rebounds, get steals, you know, make assists. He plays a full game, a complete game of basketball. He has all <clears> – <throat> he, 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 he contributes in every way. 
And um, he was allowed to, in the past, through the vast majority of the season, he doesn't have to come out of the gate looking great. He can come out and not be great. And he didn't get yanked. But, you know, Jeff Capel, the coach of the Pitt Panthers, has developed this quick hook for him. And he has him on a very, very short leash. And it's because he just believes that Sabani plays defense great, which he doesn't. But he believes he's a better defender than Greg Elliott, which he may be. But he, and he thinks that Pitt just really needs defense right now. And he's getting scared is what's happening. He's being a bad coach. He's deciding, and again, these are my creative insights at work here. So you can take them for what you, whether or not you think I'm prescient or just an asshole, fine, whatever. But my read on things is Jeff Capel, being a coach who never really won big games, doesn't really know how to coach in those situations. He's going to do what, unfortunately, too many um, lesser leaders do, which is when the going gets rough, they, their, their asshole puckers up, you know? And I think his asshole is puckering up, and he's thinking, I, I need to be careful about tightening up the ship and doing the little things, and I can't put in guys that I might otherwise not put in, and I need to yank out anybody I think is a little bit of a problem. And for whatever reason, all year long, uh, to Jeff Capel, you know, the, the one issue was uh, – Greg Elliott, for some reason. He never, ever has any in- interest in replacing anyone else, but he has. he's always had an interest in putting in Sabandi more for Elliott. But the thing is this, again, earlier in the year when he uh, wanted to bring, come out at halftime and start Sabandi over Elliott, Sabandi told him no because of team chemistry. He said, Elliott's our guy, you know. Elliot said, I wouldn't have mind if he did it. I mean, hey, he's playing great. Good for him. You know, let, let him play. So Elliot was humble about it. But Savani told him no, and, and Elliot came out in the second half and played really good. And the, the, the media made a big deal out of that, and we all heard about it and read about it. And it's so funny that during that game, I didn't want Savani to replace him, and I knew that Capel wanted to do that. And when it didn't happen, I was really happy and I talked to my dad after I said, look at this. How about that? I knew it. He was going to change him. He was going to take Elliot out. And he didn't. Thank God. Thank God. And I, and I was really happy that the team was in tune with their chemistry, with their mojo, with their spirit. You know, And that stuff is real. And that's what a sensitive, artistic person watching sports can see that most nudniks that do podcasts, and I'm sorry to insult them, but they irritate me. The people that know have all the answers that are jock-minded and are not creative at all and couldn't create anything if you put a gun to there and said, create or die, they would go, I guess I got to die. You know, those people don't see these things yet and, and, and they don't talk about them. And when you talk about them, they just blow you off and dismiss you. And what I'm seeing out there right now is nobody remembering that and, and, and seeing it for what it was, which was extremely important. In fact, I heard a podcast this morning where the guy just said, you know, the decision was made like halfway through the year. There was an issue about maybe replacing him in the starting lineup. I guess it's fine that he didn't. I guess it was fine that he just left it at the status quo. And then he mischaracterized the situation and said, when Elliot, when Sabandi's playing better than Elliot, he plays more and vice versa. That's not true. I mean, it's just not true. It wasn't just the status quo wasn't just him as a starter. 
but then he gets yanked. No, he always had more minutes, 32 minutes a game, and Sabani way down. And Sabani always played a lot anyway, and they would play together sometimes. It was never a one-for-one swap all the time. And it certainly was not a question of uh, whoever's playing better gets more minutes. That's just not true. Elliott always got more minutes all the way up until recently, just in the last couple games, when Jeff Capel's asshole has puckered up. And it's the puckered up Capel asshole that has caused him to not just start to flip-flop and replace Elliott and Sabandi, but to bench Elliott. He's been benching him. He played 16 minutes in the biggest game of the year at Miami. And they lost. And people are still trying to tag Elliott with what happened to Elliott. Why isn't he not doing more? We need more out of Elliott. Well, if, you, if you're going to need more out of him, you're going to have to leave him in there, assholes. Going to have to leave him in there. It makes me angry because they're not seeing it. They're not acknowledging it. And again, as a creative person who's sensitive to what's going on, the season's over for this pit team for that reason. It's simple as that. And it's not because Greg Elliott is the end-all, be-all. He was my favorite player. But it's because it's a Jenga game, and he pulled out the wrong log. And this fucking thing crashes. And he did, and that's what he did. Puckered ass Capel pulled out the wrong log, and this home, this, this log stack has, crack, has crumbled. And um, it's not going to get rebuilt in time. It's too late. Too late. So, and again, this, this just confirms what I believe about sports, why I like them, why I watch them, which is that there is something called team chemistry. It is real. There is a mojo and a vibe between players. And there is an important sort of uh, synergy between the coach and how he handles players, you know. And when he mishandles players and doesn't pull the right strings, that's called he's not a very good coach. And that's when you lose. But when a coach is very well aligned with his players, understands how to motivate them, you know, when they might need a little bit of a push, when they might need a little bit of punishment. What we've learned from Jeff Capel over his tenure here is he's terrible with his players. We've learned it over and over again. We hear about locker room problems and, and team chemistry issues. We've got people flying for the portal. His first recruiting class, you know, first he lost uh, McGillicuddy, McCombs, whatever his name was, the one guard, and then he lost Xavier Johnson too. And then he even lost Hadis Tony. I mean, they were like his, those three were his primary big recruits. He lost them all to the transfer portal. Not one of them, not one of them stayed with him. That's big. That's a big failure for Jeff Capel. And basically, I mean, he loses everybody, whether they leave early like Champagne did to get drafted or they just bail on the program and bail on him. And then we find out, you know, Champagne was hated in the locker room. There were issues. We find out all this turmoil. We don't even know what's going on with John Ugly now. He had another problem. He brings in Dior Johnson. He gets arrested. I mean, and you know, before he got arrested, Capel stood before the media and said, we did our vetting. I did all this vetting. I, I, if I didn't feel good about him, I would not have taken him because he's had a lot of issues with committing and decommitting and committing and decommitting. Dior Johnson did, you know. Well, guess what? <laughs> what happened to your vetting? Anyway, he gets arrested, you know. So we'll see if he plays next year. We'll see what's going on with him, if he can you know, stay, fly straight or whatever. We'll see if Ugly comes back next year. 
Who knows? Um, but the point is we've seen nothing from Jeff Capel but bad management of players. So I am not surprised. I Maybe other people would be. I'm not. That he's ruined this team, this team's chemistry and synergy by the way he's treated Greg Elliott down the stretch. He has decided he's afraid, he wants defense, he wants his guy, pogo stick man who jumps around like he's on a pogo stick, so bandy. And he, he puts him in there and, and benches. Doesn't just fl- flip him back and forth a little bit here or there. Doesn't give him some time on the bench and then put him back and see if he's picked it up. No. I mean, Elliott played three minutes in the second half. He started the second half because he didn't want to, like, flat-out bench him to start the half. And then he got him out of there, and he never put him back in. You know, and he only played 25 minutes in the terrible, terrible loss to Notre Dame. So here's the thing. He's pulling him out. He's scapegoating him. He's ruining team chemistry. The team's noticing it, but they're not saying anything. I don't know what Greg Elliott's thinking, but I know everyone else is noticing it. And they like Sabandi, and he's a senior too, and they're supporting him, and they're supporting one another. But at the end of the day, the team lost. The team lost both those games. It didn't help. It didn't work. So he made this change, shook up the starting five, and it didn't work. And now they're perilously close to not even making the NCAA tournament. They were, they were, all they had to do was win one of these two games and they would be number one seed in the ACC tournament and a lock in the NCAAs. They couldn't win either of them while our coach, Jeff Capel, was breaking the egg, cracking the egg, pulling the log out and watching the Jenga pile fall to the ground. And I'm sorry, I've watched enough sports, and I believe in this stuff. This team's not going to get back up off the deck, okay? I've seen many pit teams, in fact, pit oops teams, just start to go in the tank at the end of the year. And you kind of hope that they're going to, this game, they'll get it together, and they don't. And what's funny, you know, think of the Pittsburgh Steelers a few years ago when they were 11-0 and the pandemic season. 11-0 and with Ben Roethlisberger doing dink and dunk. Then everyone caught on, and they didn't change. And they never came up off the deck. They lost four of their last five games, and they got obliterated in the playoffs at home by the lowly Cleveland Browns. They were trailing 28 to nothing at the end of the first quarter in that playoff game. So I'm not saying this team has, has, has sort of faded that, that extreme, um, but and that was really, that Steelers season was really a matter of they had no more tricks up their sleeve. They were doing this little game plan with arm Ben's noodle arm, and it was working for a while. And then when the defense has caught on that the guy can't throw the ball, actually throw the ball anymore. You know, they're dinking and dunking because he can't throw it further. They just changed their defenses, and he couldn't, couldn't make them pay for it. He couldn't. So it wasn't just this cool offense they were running. It was literally masquerading a crippled, washed-up quarterback, you know. And then they brought him back the next year anyway. And he stunk. He really did. He pretty much stunk in his last year. Everybody talks about the come from behind wins and all that crap. Who cares? We needed to move on. But you know what? It's good that we didn't because then we were able to draft Kenny Pickett. So I don't mind. In the end, I'm fine that they brought Ben back for a worthless year because uh, they got him his little tour of everybody, got him to feel a little bit better about being – he still was bitter that they didn't bring him back yet again. But whatever. They kissed his ass a nice amount. Fans got to have a nice send-off. And we got to pick Kenny Pickett. 
you know, so it, it all worked out for the best. The best. But um, with this Pitt basketball team, this is a chemistry issue. This is a team. This is small. Basketball teams are small. Five starters, you know, and the bench players. And there's a lot going on there under the surface that you don't see because it's face-to-face. There's no helmets on, you know. This, these people are close. These are tight-knit. They practice face-to-face. You always find out after the season, you know, for those years when Paul Evans was the head coach of Pitt, you didn't know how much his players hated him. You didn't know how much that you know he would yell at them and demean, you know, demean them even in practice. You saw him screaming like a maniac during the games, but you didn't realize that was just the way he was, even with them personally. You know, you didn't know that till after the season's over. There's a lot going on in college hoops that's dramatic and and passionate. It's real, and it's about personal interaction and people treating each other certain ways. And you can get away with being kind of a jerk if you push the right buttons and win, a la Bobby Knight. But Jeff Capel is not a jerk at all. He's a nice guy. He's a, he's a perfectly fine individual. I like him. I wish he was a better basketball coach, but he's not. And the main reason he's not isn't just X's and O's. It isn't that he does not scheme up a play or he doesn't know how to change defenses to match to get certain matchups. He's okay at that. I don't think he's terrible at that. And I'll tell you this much. He's a hell of a lot better at the end of games than Jamie Dixon ever was. Jamie Dixon was terrible at the end of games when you needed that last shot. The players always stumble-bumbled around and never made quite the right last shot. He was just bad at it. And I think Jeff Capel's already better than that. But the problem, Jamie Dixon was really good with his players for the most part. In fact, when he finally got out of pit, because he stopped being good with his players. He started getting these high draft picks, or I'm sorry, high recruits, and not playing them enough and not utilizing them enough. It was Steven Adams, you know, Kem Birch. He just wasn't playing. Kem Birch transferred because he wasn't being utilized right. And Steven Adams, one and done, and yet during his one year with Pitt, he didn't even play. He, like, played the second half. So he didn't even start him, and he just barely played him and didn't, didn't run the offense through him. And then he left to be an NBA star, really, you know. So minor league star in the NBA, but a star nonetheless. And uh, so, you know, he basically started to run out of his ability to, you know, the, the Dixon system was play four years, be a senior, and then I'll give you tons of respect. I mean, remember that season he would put John DeGrode in at the beginning of every game for two minutes just because he was a senior and he wanted to show him respect for his senior season. But then he didn't come out and put in the better players. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so he really respected the seniors and he sort of his whole gig was to motivate people to stay four years because he knew that's the only way he could really win because he couldn't attract the talent you know, he himself wasn't good enough at attracting the talent. Now we got a coach, and Jeff Capel, who is good enough at attracting good talent. He actually can get players here, but he can't manage them well. He's just not good at managing players. So I don't think he's terrible at X's and O's. I think he's a pretty good recruiter. I just don't think he's good at people management. And he's not good at reading the room with team chemistry. And he's not good at feeding it. And he's not good at making the moves during a game or during a season that keep a team tight and close, you know, close to one another. I think this year he got lucky and these guys were close to one another anyway. And they had a team chemistry anyway. 
And he was kind of riding that wave, you know, just standing on the board going, look at this. Wow. And then the wave got a little bumpy and he just fell right off the board. And he's been hanging on to a board and can't get back up. And he can't he can't get to, he can't ride it anymore. He can't surf anymore. He's just sort of, you know, you got to get him a life preserver and put it around his waist just to keep him from drowning is basically what has happened. And um, I think there was a bump in the road and it was real about their defense recently. But he picked the wrong solution. You know, this, 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 it's Elliot's fault scapegoating and hurting the starting five chemistry was not the correct solution. You just motivate them all to play better defense somehow. But not by yanking him, not by benching him, and certainly not by benching him in the most important game of the year. Most important games of the year. You know, he, didn't, he didn't play him, and he basically benched him in the second half against Notre Dame. Played him in the first half like crazy, basically benched him in the second. And then did bench him in the whole second half, except for three minutes against, against Miami. 25 minutes in the one game, 16 in the next. And, the, and we didn't win, so... His, his, his touch, his decision, how to maneuver this, this stretch was wrong. And that's what he always is, is wrong in these situations. And that's why I'd like them to let him go because he's never going to be good at this. He's never going to make it work. He doesn't have it. You know what I mean? He's like an artist who just isn't a very good painter. <laughs> Keeps trying, but he's just not very good. Um, or an athlete who, you know, might be okay on special teams but is never going to start for you and really isn't good enough on special teams to keep on the team. He's a practice squad player at best. That's Jeff Gable. He's a practice squad player, and you need a starter. You need, you need your coach to be a starter, and you'd like him to be a star. You'd like him to be a number one draft pick star as a, as a coach, you know, if you can get lucky. But at the very least, you need a starting player as your coach. You can't have him be a practice squad guy. So, and I just think that at the end of the day, because of how he mismanages players, and he's done it all along, and he's done it his whole career, that's his, that's his uh, Achilles heel. And it's not going to get better. So we need to find someone who can manage players well. And I, I stress this, too, because in today's college basketball game, with the transfer portal, with the one-and-dones, that's everything. Way more important than X's and O's. Way, well, certainly recruiting is always important. But it's very, very important to manage your players well because there's always going to be a flow of players coming and going. And you've got to know the right buttons to push, and you've got to be good with personalities and, and um, team chemistry you know, and how, to, and how to keep that together. And certainly you can't be puckering up your asshole in big games. And, and, and if you've already proven that you just can't seem to coach well in big games, then you're never going to suddenly get good at that. You know, he just doesn't have it in big games. And he doesn't have it with player management. He just doesn't. So we can sit and lose with him for a few more years if you want to. But I've seen enough. And I don't believe the pit this year is going to do anything. I don't believe they're going to get in the NCAAs because I think they're going to lose Wednesday to Florida State or Georgia Tech, whoever it would be. I think they're going to lose that game because I think he's ruined the team by his mishandling of Greg Elliott. And I think it's as simple as that, and nobody sees it, and nobody, everyone will think I'm crazy, but you watch. You watch. 
you watch and see with this pit team who had ridden so high. They'll just dismiss it. They'll say it's other things. They'll say they were never that good. They'll make all these excuses for him, and they'll get excited for next year, and we'll come in next year with Jeff Capel, and we still won't win, and we won't do anything good. We'll get the big games, and he'll choke again. There'll be issues with teammates. There'll be problems. There'll be other arrests. There'll be fights. Who knows? There'll be all kinds of shit. How long will it take before Heather Like and... The other fans come around and realize, you know what? Jeff Capel, great guy, really nice, really wanted him to succeed, but he just doesn't have it. He just doesn't. How long? I don't know. We'll wait and see. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to stay a fan. I'm going to keep watching, but I can't help it that this is what I see and feel as an artist, as a creative person. This is what I see. This is what I feel. This is how I'm reading the tea leaves. This is the sense I'm getting from that team, from that coach. This is what I'm sensing. And it's why I like sports, because I don't just watch wins and losses in games. I enjoy feeling and sensing the drama, the underlying story, the underlying mystery. You know, it's it's cool. It's like looking into a family. You don't want to talk about drama. Families have drama, right? They have tensions. They have, you know, miscommunications. They have people that prefer other people. That parents that prefer one child to another, but don't say that, you know. And children that prefer one parent to another. There's all kinds of underlying drama. And um, if you looked into everyone's family, you'd see this. But some people wouldn't see it. They just, some parents don't see it. Some parents sleepwalk with their eyes closed through their own families. And they don't even understand what they're doing and how they're causing problems and the underlying issues going on. They're, they're just not in tune with it. Some kids, too, just sort of numb themselves to what's happening around them. So so it's not a surprise then that sports fans watching, looking into a a basketball family, for example, are numb to it or close their eyes to it because they do it in their own households. So that's the issue. It's like, are you a sensitive type, a creative type, so that you aren't afraid to open your eyes and see the truth about what's going on, even if it's ugly? And that's who I am. That's who I've always been. That's exactly who I am. So I enjoy watching sports because it's a, it's not just watching wins and losses and the passion and the excitement. It's also a glimpse into a family and a little bit of drama, and I get to read that. And it isn't always pretty. Sometimes it is, though. Sometimes it's magical. Sometimes I know this team's special. And that's the way this team was. They were special. It was exciting. You had a real reason to hope that they, had, they could go far. Make some noise, as they say. You had a reason to hope and believe they could make some noise in the NCAA tournament. And now, if you're paying attention, if your eyes are wide open, your heart's open, your perceptions are on, you know they're done. You know the season's over. It's not a good thing to know, but you know it. And you have to accept it. And you have to see it. I'll keep watching, but... I would be shocked. If they win Wednesday, I'll be surprised. And if they win anything after that at all, I'll be shocked. I love you. Yabba da boop bop.